nearly as much as I anticipate the arrival of my children coming home, then heaven's going to be a blast, right? And it makes perfect sense, that verse in the Bible, where it says how, uh, how pleasant, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. From our perspective, that seems really morbid, but not at all. Our Father says, you're coming home, right? I mean, he is anticipating our arrival, and so it's just going to be a great party. Um, This morning, hope. Hope is really the theme of Easter, isn't it? And I want to say this to you, if there's a part of your life where you're losing hope, that's a part of your life where the enemy is gaining ground. That it's, if there's a part of your life that is without hope, that's a part where Jesus is not king, because Jesus is the king of hope. It's a part where you've lost sight of the truth that we've been celebrating this morning. When you understand, friend, this has to sink in, death has been defeated. There, there is no other weapon left that the enemy has against you and me. He's got none. He has been defeated. All of his weapons have been disarmed, every one of them. And so there really is no uh, reason for a child of God to have any part of their life that's hopeless because I serve the king of hope and death has been defeated and this isn't my home anyway. And God has a God. I mean, eh, death, death is not fatal. And your failures are not final. Can you hear that good news? Death is not fatal. And your failures are not final. My theme this morning is ashes to glory. And... I've got to be honest, I have about three different passages of Scripture that we've really been praying about, and I'm still not sure which one we're going to look at. And so if the slides are off, that's my fault. It's not their fault in the back, and I'm just thankful for what they do. But the theme, I know this, the theme is ashes to glory. If you think about it, ashes have nothing in common with glory, right? Ashes. They don't look like one another. They're nothing like one another, ashes and glory. Ashes come after something has been burned. Ashes come after something has been reduced. After the life has been pulled out of something, burned out of it, sucked out of it, what you have left is ashes. And ashes are worthless. Ashes, I, if I had buckets of ashes here, I couldn't even give them to you. Would anybody want to take a bucket of ashes home? Can I have any takers? You'd say, no, no thanks. I have enough dirt at my house. Thank you. Right? We don't... Ashes are worthless. You, You almost could not get any lower on the planet, right, than ashes. Ashes... Ashes are light. They blow away. If you tried to take a handful of ashes and walk across the room, you wouldn't be left with much in your hand by the time you got to the other side. They just... They're, it, they're, the, they're the picture of futility. They're the picture of emptiness. They're the picture of worthlessness. They're what happens when there's all the life has been taken out of something. There's no good purpose. Ashes. 
but glory. Hmm. Glory is altogether different stuff. The Bible word for glo- the Bible word for glory that gets translated as the word glory in the New Testament is the word doxa. It's the word that uh, churches get the word doxology from. Maybe if you've grown up in church, you've used the word doxology. You've sung the doxology, right? So doxa is the word glory in the Bible, and it means literally it means weighty. It means heavy. But practically speaking, it means valuable. If something has weight to it, it's important, right? You're putting a lot of weight on this. A lot's riding on this one, right? That means it's, it's important. It's valuable. It's glory. So God is glorious, isn't he? Glory grabs your attention. Glory wins your admiration. Ashes win nothing. So on Good Friday, it was ashes. Jesus was killed. Our Savior was dead. That's a bad day when your Savior dies. You put all your hope. You think, that guy's going to get, he's the answer. He's going to get us out of here. That guy. And then he died. So your hope becomes ashes. Your future becomes dust. Answers empty. A dead Savior doesn't help anybody, does he? Good Friday was ashes. But then, come on, friends, we know the rest of the story, don't we? Then you have Easter. You have Easter Sunday morning. That is glory. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus took Satan's last and greatest weapon, and he defeated it. He beat it. So Jesus turned ashes into glory. Amazing. He's the only one that could do that. And to all of us ash dwellers, the question that the angels asked the ladies on Easter Sunday morning as they were walking through the cemetery to find the body of Jesus, to go to his tomb, the angels asked the ladies in Luke chapter 24, verse 5, they asked this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? I love that question. That's a poignant question, is it not? Why do you look for the living among the dead? That's a good question. Why do we look for life in the ashes? Just because something or someone looks alive or feels alive, seems alive, it doesn't mean that it actually is alive. Have you learned that lesson yet? My fellow ash dwellers, right? The resurrection reminds me that what I hold here on earth is ashes. It's fleeting. It's a mist. It's dust. Stop looking for life in the dead. You're just not going to find it. Have you ever thought that something was going to work out and then it blew up in your face? You searched for life in the ashes. You searched for life in the dead and you came up empty. I mean, you thought for sure, you thought for sure that guy was the one. I just thought for sure it. And then he mistreated you and you ended up with ashes. You thought for sure she was the right one for you. Didn't work out. Ended up 
ashes. Thought for sure you had the dream job, and then they laid you off. Ashes. You thought for sure this was your ship that was coming in. Finally, finally. And then it sank, and you were left with ashes, right? Why do we continue trying to find life in the ashes? Why? As the angels asked, why do you look for life among the dead? You're not going to find it, friend. No matter how bright the lights are, and no matter how loud the music is, and no matter how great the laughter seems, and no matter how cool the smoke machine is, and the mirrors are, and no matter how much fun it looks like it is, if you see through it, you just puff, and it's all gone. It's empty. Romans chapter 1, verse 23 sums it up this way. It says, they, referring to us, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men. Let me just make it we. Let's put it personal. We, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men. We traded down. We didn't trade up. We traded glory. We had it, and we traded it for ashes. That's what it's saying, right? We traded Ashes for glory. You know, when I was a kid, my mom packed my lunch for school. And in our house, we were always on a diet. Always. I don't ever remember not being on a diet. It was no fun. No good food. It was always on a diet. Whether it was the grapefruit diet, or it was Weight Watchers, or it was you name it, we always had a great diet going on. So my mom would pack my lunch... God love her. And she would give me carrot sticks in my lunch, right? Carrot sticks and other healthy treats. I don't think the word healthy and treat should be in the same sentence. I really don't. They're not, they're not the same, just not at all. And my buddy Steve Cook, he had the best lunches ever. His mother would pack him Twinkies and Fritos and the Hostess Ding-Dongs, the good stuff. You know, he had all the good stuff. And Steve was skinny as a rail. I never understood it. And he had all this great stuff in his lunch. And you know, you know what? He would never trade with me. <laughs> never. You see, every fourth grader knows a bad trade when they see one. It's one of the basic rules of the lunchroom. You don't trade Twinkies for carrot sticks doesn't work. You don't trade down. You always have to trade up. That was a good trade for me, carrot sticks for Twinkies, not a good trade for Steve, right? And you don't trade glory for ashes, yet we do it all the time. Many a person's life has been shipwrecked because we traded down and not up. And I found it any time I compromise on this basic rule, I pay the price. In my place of ministry, I've watched countless lives crash on the rocks because somebody traded glory for ashes. The ashes seem to look good in the moment for some dumb reason. And they ended up with nothing. You know, the devil doesn't care how much you have, as long as you don't have Jesus. The good news, though, of Easter is this, that as 
that God can turn even ashes into glory. That's the good news. God redeems our ashes, right? Is that good news, friends? Are you thankful for that, my fellow ash dwellers? Is that good news, right? That God takes our ashes, he can actually turn them into glory. He really can. He he does all the time. Now listen, the fact that God can do that is no reason for me to continue making that bad trade. So if this morning you're on the verge of making the choice to trade down, I urge you, please don't do it. But the good news is this. This morning, if you're sitting here with a pile of ashes, I want you to know something. I want to encourage you that the same God that raised Jesus from the dead has the power to turn your pile of ashes into glory. God calls the things that are not as though they are. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day, right, that Jesus made his grand entrance into Jerusalem. He rides into the town on this donkey, right? And the people laid down their palm branches on the ground, and they, and they wanted him to walk on it. And it was sort of a makeshift red carpet because they were treating Jesus like the VIP. He was for the day. He was the center of the party. He was the VIP. Definitely stole the show. And yet the Gospel of Luke records something interesting about Jesus in that parade. In Luke chapter 19, it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he rode on the donkey into Jerusalem. That seems kind of odd. He's crying at his own party. Do you see the... It's, I think it's cool the way that Luke writes it. Because... You see, on one hand, the crowd all around Jesus, and they're just dancing and shouting and singing praises, and it's a party. Like, they are happy. And Jesus is weeping. I find that strange. Why was Jesus weeping? Luke chapter 19, it says, Jesus says this, If you, only you, had known On this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. Isn't that something? Jesus stands before you, and he's the answer to every question. He's the solution to every problem. He's the peace that you're looking for, and yet it's possible to miss him. He's right in front of you. You see, the crowd's perspective of Jesus was ashes. The crowd's perspective of Jesus that day was ashes. Jesus is not ashes, but their perspective of him was ashes. Follow? You've got to understand something. Jesus doesn't want to just be your number one. He wants to be your only one. After all, he did beat the grave. So that makes him worthy of that spot, does it not? I mean, really. It's not like... It's not like some schmo is asking you to be their only one. I mean, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who defeated the grave, the second person of the Trinity. God in the flesh is not asking to be your number one. He's asking to be your only one. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I really liked this quote. C.S. Lewis said that if there is no God, nothing matters. If there is God... Nothing else matters. 
God, by very definition of being God, is worthy of absolutely everything we've got. Is he not? And haven't we been duped into just getting stuck in our ashes and failing to see the greatness of the God who made us? Jesus turns my ashes into glory by becoming my glory. I want to caution you. Jesus is not just your ticket out of trouble. If you treat Jesus like your ticket out of trouble, you're treating him like ashes. But Jesus wants to get you out of trouble. Oh, he does. He's very much able to do that and wants to do that. But you understand he's bigger than that. He wants more than that. Jesus wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you, talk with you. He wants to be yours and for you to be his. He doesn't just want to be your ticket. I put a quote up on my Facebook page this week by Charles Spurgeon. I thought it was really good. If you ever want a good read, read anything by Charles Spurgeon. He was a 19th century British preacher, so his language reflects that. He's a little old-fashioned in his language, but it's a great read. And, I, and most of his stuff you can find online. It's public domain at this point. It's you know, well over 150 years old. But excellent stuff. One of the things that Charles Spurgeon said was this. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. You'll never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Until you come to the place that you discover this is all ashes... All this stuff that I put my hope in and I thought was going to work out, it didn't work out as well as I thought it would work out. It's ashes. I come to that place. And now I'm ready to understand the fullness of Jesus. You see, part of the reason why God allows my best plans to become ashes is because he wants to reveal the emptiness of my best plans. God loves you enough to let your plans fall apart. He loves you enough to let your dreams shatter. Everything is empty but Christ. Just because it looks alive doesn't mean that it is alive. And just because it looks like fun doesn't mean it really is fun. You know what they say the last two words of a redneck are? Watch this. Right? It seemed like a great idea at the time. I don't know. You, I thought if I lit it, it would be a blast. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was already, you know. <laughs> right? Watch this. Come on now. Doesn't that pretty much describe our lives? Haven't you ever found yourself there? You're like, I thought this was going to be a good idea. <laughs> and then, and suddenly it didn't work out the way that I thought it would work out. Hmm. Well, that's a good thing. If it leads me to Jesus. The Bible's full of stories that illustrate how the simplest of things become profound when Jesus is in them. The simplest of things, the most common things. Think about it. Moses' staff. You understand, staff is a fancy word for stick. His stick became the thing that God used to part the Red Sea. A stick. It became the thing that God used to smack a rock and bring water out of it and water an entire nation with all their animals. Moses' stick But it wasn't just a stick, was it? 
Jesus used it. In the hands of Jesus, it became much more than a stick. You have Elijah's cloak. Elijah's cloak, it's kind of a little a scarf. I don't know what, you'd, what else it would be. Elijah's cloak became the thing that anointed the prophet with power. You have Balaam's donkey. A donkey became the thing that God used to speak to a wayfaring prophet. A boy's lunch became the thing that Jesus used to feed a crowd of thousands. You have Bethlehem. You know, the only reason why you've even heard of Bethlehem is because Jesus was born there. It's a little out-of-the-way, otherwise nondescript, no-name town. It's just a little backwater place. But Jesus was born there. And now it's one of the most famous towns in the history of the world, right? Do you get the thread? You see, you see the common thing between all these items? When Jesus is in it, when Jesus is in it, it's not common anymore. Hmm. No matter how great something is, it's empty if it's without Jesus. And no matter how small and insignificant something is, it's great if it's got Jesus. Ashes can become glory if Jesus is in them. Ashes can become glory if Jesus is in them. In Isaiah chapter 61, it says this, and I need to find it for us. In Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. So God trades with you. Give me your ashes, and I will give you a crown of beauty. God's willing to trade down. Thank you, Jesus. The oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus came to give you and me a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Friend. Are you staring at ashes this morning? Because the message of Easter is Jesus. Just leave it there. That pretty much answers it all. I was going to add something. I thought, no, that really, that's complete. Jesus, that's the answer. I want to close with a little story from the Bible. I love stories from the Bible. You've heard of Job, perhaps. Job is a man in the Bible who is known, he's remembered for having a really bad day. I mean, a a really bad day. In one day, Job got the news. Can you imagine? In one day, he got the news that all of his children 
had been killed in a tragic accident, that all of his wealth had been gone, taken away, everything. The man lost everything in one day. I think he pretty much wins the prize for having the worst day in the history of the world of anybody else, right? And so Job, as you can imagine, he's absolutely ripped up over it, absolutely torn to pieces over it, right? Understandably. And Job is sitting, the Bible says, on a pile of ashes that used to be his house, because that got burned down too. And he's scraping his sores on his skin with potsherds, which used to be his fine china, and now it's just broken china, pieces of glass. Okay, follow? And he's scraping the, the wounds. He's trying to itch his wounds, right, with his broken pieces of his old plates. <laughs> and Job cries out, and I, I appreciate this prayer. In Job chapter 9, verses 32 to 35, Job says, he, he's not he referring to God. He goes, God is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other. Job wanted his day in court, right? He had his questions for God. And here's Job, he says, if only there were someone to mediate between us. If only there was someone to bring us together. Hmm. So that his terror would not frighten me anymore. Then I... Job would be able to speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Here's Job on the pile of ashes that used to be his house saying, I'd really like my shot at God. If only there was somebody that could mediate for us. If only there was somebody that could help me get to talk to God. Have you ever asked that question? If I could just have a way to get to God, if I could, I'd really like it. Job chapter 16, a couple of chapters later, Job says this, and I, as time goes on, verses 18 to 21, Job says, Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. You need to understand something. Job lived a couple of thousand years before Jesus came to earth. You understand, Job is one of the oldest characters in the whole Bible. He predates Abraham. And he is way back and so Job is on the pile of ashes he's going if I could just have a mediator just somebody to help me talk to God and then a little while later Job goes ah, my intercessor is my friend I have a friend I have a friend in heaven I have someone who will mediate to God for me I have that person Job would not have called him Jesus he didn't know you understand, Job did not know Jesus, right? He predates Jesus as a man on earth, right? He didn't predate Jesus 
practically. You get that, right? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's always been, always will be. He's God. But Job predated the incarnate Jesus. Job goes, my intercessor is my friend. And then Job gets revealed this. In Job chapter 19, verse 23, Job says this. I think this is a turning point for Job. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me, Job cried. You see you see where he's going? On one day, it's the worst day ever. If I could just have a mediator, I want my day in court, I want to talk to God. A little while later, my intercessors, my friend, I have a mediator. He's talking to God. I know him. He knows me. A little while later, I know my Redeemer lives. I know it. And someday I'm going to get the opportunity to see God face to face. Why? Because my Redeemer lives. He's not dead. My Redeemer's not ashes. He's glory. Ha! Friends, that is your testimony and mine. I dare say there's none of us that's had a day as bad as Job had. None of us. So in other words, take your worst day, take your biggest pile of ashes, and know this, your Redeemer lives. Can we celebrate that today? Would you stand and let's sing? We're not done yet, but we're going to stand and sing. we got to celebrate that fact. My Redeemer lives.